Welcome to Below the Line, a podcast by the Northwestern University Law Review. I'm Emily Rosnowski. I'm Emma England. And we're both editors of the Northwestern University Law Review Online. Today we're talking with Professor Clay Calvert about his recent essay titled Reconsidering Incitement, Tinker, and the Heckler's Veto on College Campuses, Richard Spencer and the Charlottesville Factor. Professor Calvert is the Breckner Eminent Scholar in Mass Communication and the director of the Marion B. Breckner First Amendment Project at the University of Florida. We hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so Professor, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, We want to start off with if you could tell us a little bit about your essay and what inspired it. Sure. Well, uh, this essay was inspired by Richard Spencer's visit to the uh, University of Florida campus here in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, it was uh, quite the event when he came here. Uh, many students were upset that the university had to allow him on campus. And I realized uh, at that time that many students really, it, we're a public university at the University of Florida, and many students really didn't understand much about the First Amendment and the question of why a public university like the University of Florida has to invite a speaker like Richard uh, Spencer, uh, or not invite, but have him on campus despite the fact that many people didn't want him to come. But because we're a public university, the First Amendment necessarily applies, and the University of Florida creates various auditoriums, including the Phillips Center where he spoke, uh, that house speech activities, whether those speech activities are plays uh, or a TEDx talk, uh, whatever it might be. And uh, obviously the university can't engage in what we call viewpoint-based discrimination. So I thought it was really a a prime opportunity uh, in this essay to explicate and discuss some of the issues about what happens when a controversial speaker like Richard Spencer chooses to come to a public university campus. Uh, And obviously, this took place uh, after the Charlottesville violence uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, not actually on UVA's campus, but uh, very close by when there was going to be a a statue uh, of Robert E. Lee removed. Uh, And that, of course, triggered violence in Charlottesville. So we were the first university to which he came to speak uh, after Charlottesville. So, again, for all those reasons, I chose to write this essay. Just to clarify, so did the university invite him or did he just choose to come to Gainesville? Sure. Uh, The university did not invite him. Uh, In fact, uh, under our policy at the University of Florida, a speaker does not have to be invited by a student group. So some public universities have policies where uh, the only speakers who are allowed on campus are those that are invited by a registered student organization or a faculty member, you know, or a department or a college. Uh, Our policy is not like that. So the Phillips Center where he spoke simply is an auditorium which houses various events, uh, musical performers, plays, et cetera. Uh, But you don't have to be invited there. So, no, uh, he was uninvited. Uh, and the university president, Kent Fox, uh, made that very clear that uh, this was not something that we necessarily wanted, but more that something that we had under, we had to accept uh, under the First Amendment. Professor, your essay asks whether Brandenburg permits universities to preemptively ban a speaker from campus based on past violent incidences associated with their speeches. Can you tell us about your argument? So under the Brandenburg incitement to violence test, Uh, 
the Supreme Court would ask whether the speech in question is directed, meaning intended, uh, to provoke imminent uh, or imminent violence or lawless action, and is also likely uh, to produce that violence. And so if all of those elements are met, intent, imminence, and likelihood, uh, then the speech can be banned under uh, the Brandenburg versus Ohio incitement to violence test. The question that is coming up now when Richard Spencer wants to visit campuses is whether a university can say, look, in the past, his speech indeed has incited violence, and therefore we can preemptively ban him from even coming to campus. Or the issue that I explore is whether Brandenburg requires that somebody actually be allowed to start speaking first before you ban them. In other words, is Brandenburg a test built for stopping speech as it's in progress or for banning future expression? Uh, prior restraints uh, on speech are presumptively con unconstitutional under the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has made that very clear. So, uh, again, prior restraints presumptively unconstitutional. The government typically has a high burden uh, of proving that a prior restraint is necessary. Uh, and in this case, the University of Florida uh, would be the governmental entity. And so the question is really, can public universities, after Charlottesville, Virginia, reach for the Brandenburg versus Ohio incitement to violence test and grab onto that and say, hey, look, he's caused violence in the past, so Brandenburg becomes essentially a prior restraint uh, mechanism. We can look to that. And I argue that that's actually incorrect and that's not the, not the case, that Brandenburg doesn't allow essentially for what you might call preemptive strikes against speakers who kind of in the past have been associated with violence. What it would require is that uh, Richard Spencer be allowed to come to campus, that he start to speak, and then at that time, the police officers or law enforcement officials on the ground here would have to make a determination whether, in fact, under Brandenburg, his speech was directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and likely to lead to it. So at that stage, if they found he gets a few words into his speech, it seems he's intending to incite his own followers to commit violence against others. And then maybe based upon past uh, incidents of violence, the law enforcement officials could say, hey, there's a likelihood of it because in the past there was some violence and so now it's likely to do it again. Then you could shut him down. So what I kind of tease out is this dichotomy between is, Brandenburg, is, is Brandenburg about stopping speech in progress or is it about banning future expression? And I come down on the side that it's about uh, uh, – stopping speech that is actually in progress and not banning future expression. So you got to allow Richard Spencer on campus. Once he starts to speak, then law enforcement officials can go through a Brandenburg analysis and then stop him at that stage if they find all of the elements of Brandenburg have been satisfied. So we don't even, we don't even get to likelihood until Richard Spencer starts speaking. Is that right? Yeah. So the likelihood question, so Brandenburg, one of the key elements is that the speech actually be likely uh, to incite or produce imminent lawless action. The court is never unfortunately, the Supreme Court has never unfortunately defined how likely it has to be, whether that means more probable than not, you know, clear and convincing evidence. What does it mean simply to be likely? They've never established that. But what I think is probably clear is that past incidents of violence associated with the speaker will necessarily influence the likelihood determination uh, because it's more likely that he's going to bring violence if he has in the past. That would seem like a logical argument. But again, he's got to be allowed to start speaking. And then we allow the police officers to make that decision. 
uh, you know, one of the big issues that I, I don't really talk about in the essay, but I think is important is how well trained are police officers in the Brandenburg test? Uh, because you think about it, the, the judges back in the courtroom later on sorting out whether or not it was okay for the police officers to stop Richard Spencer, hypothetically, under Brandenburg. But the police on the ground are the one who have to make, you know, a snap judgment in the kind of the heat of the moment and say to themselves, can we cut this guy off without violating his First Amendment rights? Uh, and so that's a very difficult call, uh, especially when police obviously feel the need to protect public safety. And here you have a man who potentially is agitating his followers to commit violence, not necessarily that he will or that he is, but, but potentially. And so they're kind of going to be ready to cut him off, probably if given any provocation uh, to prevent violence. So I think that's another kind of unexplored. Is Brandenburg really made for judges? which I think it is, uh, but is it also made for police on the ground? Because they're the ones who would have to be the, the first line, essentially, to shut them off or to allow them to keep speaking. So it's an interesting question, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I think that we see that in a lot of areas of constitutional law, particularly with exactly. the Fourth Amendment. You know, when can a police search a house? They have to make all these kinds of legal calls every day, which they might not be trained in. So what about public high school speech cases? Tinker permits schools to censor speech based on past misconduct. You argue that those cases don't apply to universities. Why? So uh, assuming that the Brandenburg versus Ohio incitement to violence standard does not allow public universities to stop Richard Spencer from speaking on campus, then those public universities have to try to latch on to another tool, another part of First Amendment doctrine or First Amendment jurisprudence to try to do that. And one area where they might go is to look to other types of schools or, uh, or educational institutions, and those being at, the, at a lower level, the high school level. And so the Supreme Court in Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District uh, it created a test for determining when the speech of high school students can be stopped. And we call that the substantial material disruption test. And it's whether or not the test actually asks whether school officials, public high schools and middle school officials, uh, have actual reasons or facts to forecast that a student's speech uh, will cause a substantial material disruption of the educational atmosphere or interference with the rights of other students. And if they do actually have those facts to do that, then that student's speech can be cut off. Uh, so Tinker essentially does allow for prior restraint on speech in some circumstances where past uh, speech has caused violence. So the, the, the quintessential example would be in the South, uh, with the Confederate battle flag uh, clothing or uh, indicia on somebody, a bumper sticker on a pickup truck or somebody wearing a Confederate flag belt buckle or T-shirt. Uh, if, if a school has had a history of racial trouble and racial tension uh, between black and white students and a fairly recent history, then school officials have the power under Tinker to predict that the wearing of Confederate battle flag clothing will cause a substantial material disruption of the educational atmosphere, and therefore they can preemptively ban the wearing of Confederate battle flag clothing to school. So in other words, if, if, if there's been a history of violence and it's due to speech, then the schools can enact rules prohibiting the wearing of that type of clothing. So Tinker arguably does allow for uh, preemptive strikes against future speech. It's not like you have to wear, be allowed to wear the Confederate battle flag T-shirt, and then we can stop you. You can just simply say, no, we're going to ban you from wearing it at all. Uh, the danger, though, 
in the Richard Spencer situation is that you're dealing with public universities where students are 18 and up. Uh, they are considered adults. They have the right to vote. Uh, well, in high school, uh, it's a, a younger level. Uh, some students may be 18, but most are under 18. And so you're dealing really with a test tinker that was created for high school students. And the question is, should you be allowed to apply it at a higher level uh, of public universities? And I answer that question, no, because I see a slippery slope happening that if you say, well, tinker can apply when speakers with hateful messages come to campus at the college level, so we can stop them. Well, eventually the tinker standard will be used to stifle the speech of public university students themselves uh, based upon what they are saying. Uh, and so I don't think we should graft on to the college level uh, a test tinker that was designed to, to apply at the high school level. So I found that to be uh, problematic in my analysis. So you also mention in the essay that when Richard Spencer was at Gainesville in September, um, I think the university and also Florida taxpayers spent about $500,000 on security costs. And Spencer only spent, I think you say, about 3800 for his own security. So why should the university be the one who's forced to carry the burden of protecting a white nationalist speaker here? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it, and it really comes down uh, to this concept of the heckler's veto, uh, that uh, the government has an obligation to protect the speaker uh, from potentially hostile reactions of the audience that would stifle the speaker from talking. So we knew at the University of Florida there was going to be a big turnout of anti-Richard Spencer uh, protesters. Uh, the heckler's veto doctrine in First Amendment jurisprudence says that an audience's hostile or violent reaction to a speaker's message should not be allowed to shut that speaker down. That the government, the University of Florida, has the burden, bears the burden of protecting that speaker, whether we like that speaker's message or not. And so essentially the University of Florida, as you said, had to pay more than half a million dollars uh, to fund police, uh, sheriffs, uh, you name it. Uh, the governor, Rick Scott, actually declared a, a state of emergency in Alachua County, where University of Florida is located. Uh, all of that was necessary, essentially, to protect Richard Spencer's right to speak and to prevent the heckler's veto. Again, the hostile audience reaction shutting him down. Uh, there's a case uh, from Georgia that suggested that uh, the government bears the burden of those security costs, and you can't simply shift them to Richard Spencer, because eventually that cost would become so prohibitive, the half a million, that he couldn't afford it, and that therefore uh, it, be, it is tantamount to a heckler's veto in the form of money rather than a hostile audience reaction. In other words, Richard Spencer would say, look, you're charging me half a million dollars for security. I can't afford that. What you're really trying to do is make it so cost prohibitive that I can't talk on your campus. And so in some ways, uh, this is really the high cost of free speech, as it were, uh, that the governmental entities like the University of Florida and other public universities bear the burden of funding the uh, security costs uh, to prevent the heckler's veto. So the heckler's veto really is interesting here because it protects Richard Spencer's right to speak at a very high cost borne by public universities that really don't have the budget to afford this. Uh, University of California, Berkeley, uh, in 2017 spent, I believe, more than $2 million on security uh, issues surrounding speakers such as Milo Yiannopoulos, Ann Coulter, uh, and others, Ben Shapiro. 
who wanted to or did come to campus. Uh, and, and the UC system is in deep financial trouble, as are many uh, public universities. So uh, it's, it's highly problematic. Uh, one solution that uh, the University of Florida President Kent Fox proposed was essentially creating, a, at the federal level, almost like a FEMA fund, you know, instead of federal emergency management for disasters such as hurricanes and earthquakes, <laughs> you take one for extremist speakers. Uh, but all that would do would be that would shift the burden to the taxpayer at the federal level because it's still the feds uh, who would be funding that, right? So the University of Florida would apply hypothetically to a pot of money administered by some government agency in D.C. because the First Amendment essentially says we've got to host him, we've got to protect him, we can't deny him access either under Brandenburg uh, and the heckler's veto says we've got to protect him. So that was one proposal. Uh, I just see that simply as shifting the burden from the local taxpayer, whether it's, uh, you know, the state of Florida or Alachua County where we are, or the University of Florida as the governmental entity, which had to pick up the tab in this case, and shifting that over to at the federal level. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily the most constructive uh, solution to that. So right now, I mean, the, the other danger is what if a speaker or a series of speakers such as Richard Spencer chooses to come to the same campus back to back to back? So Richard Spencer costs between five hundred to $600,000, University of Florida, and then the next month another uh, white nationalist extremist speaker chooses to come to uh, campus, and it costs another half a million. Uh, you know, eventually it becomes so you know, cost prohibitive to the university that there has to be some kind of a solution. And I don't think that when the court decided that Forsyth County case uh, which was the case from Georgia, when it said essentially that local government entities can't shift those fee costs to the group that wants to march. Uh, and that was a white nationalist movement in that case. Um, I don't think they ever anticipated this type of situation. So, I mean, Richard Spencer is clearly provocative. He's a button pusher, and he's kind of testing the limits of First Amendment jurisprudence. Yeah, so I think I think the one other thing at play here is that you know, there's a very real concern for campus safety, particularly for students of color when a white nationalist comes to speak, and especially in light of what happened in Charlottesville. So how do you think a university should balance the First Amendment rights of the speaker with the safety of students on campus? Sure. And that's a really good question, striking that balance. Uh, I mean, I think to protect safety on campus, I mean, there were more than 500 law enforcement officers on campus, so students were going to be safe. Uh, that doesn't mean that they might not fear for their own safety, uh, but when there's one person, Richard Spencer, and about 25, maybe to 30 of his followers, uh, and there are 500 police on campus, uh, students are going to be safe. I think the university president uh, here, Ken Fox, did the right thing. Uh, he encouraged people uh, who objected to his viewpoint to stay away uh, from that. Uh, on the one hand, I endorse that because what Richard Spencer feeds on is you know, public uh, is media publicity. You know, he's pre he wants there to be controversy to garner attention uh, to his viewpoint and gain media coverage. So staying away would deprive him of that. On the other hand, I do think students and faculty and staff and community members have an obligation to engage in what we call counter speech, to show up at his event uh, and, and speak out against him. So just as we allow for freedom of speech, in the marketplace of ideas, the remedy for speech we don't like in the marketplace is counter speech, to add more speech. So show up and protest him. Have your own banners, uh, chant, shout, 
not engage in violence, right? It's got to be peaceful assembly under the First Amendment or peaceably assemble under the First Amendment. But, uh, you know, engage in counter speech, uh, put more speech in the marketplace of ideas. So there were really two ways of looking at it. The other thing that our president, Ken Fox, did was uh, we were not to cancel classes. Faculty were not to cancel classes. Uh, but we also could not mandate that students show up to those classes on that day. So uh, my attendance in the class that I teach, which was uh, I have more than I had more than 275 students in my class uh, last fall, about 30 to 40 of them actually showed up that day. So my solution was simply I had a TA take notes and then I posted the notes online on our Canvas system for the online system for our courses, the University of Florida. So that was it. So if you didn't want to come to class, I get it. The TA is going to take notes that day. I'll post the notes online. So I think that was a fairly good balance. I think the reason President Fox didn't want to cancel classes was he didn't want to give Richard Spencer more power to show that, look, you've totally frightened us all and you've disrupted our workday. And now we're going to we're going to cower to you and not hold classes. So by doing that, I think he said, no, we're going to go on with our routine as normal. We're going to have more than 500 officers on campus. That's going to protect you if you want to go to class. If you don't want to go to class, that's fine. You know, the professors are, just, are supposed to be accommodating in some way. Do that. And my way of being accommodating was by having a TA, the teaching assistant, take notes and post, posting those notes that same day uh, online. Uh, you know, the, the situation now is, you know, he sued other universities. Uh, he spoke at Michigan State uh, just this month in March. Uh, of 2018, but Michigan State, he had sued Michigan State, uh, claiming that Michigan State uh, was violating his First Amendment right of free speech. Uh, Michigan State ultimately relented, but it did something clever. Uh, it allowed him to speak over spring break, uh, which, which was fine because very few students are going to be around over spring break. Uh, and there he was also met by counter protesters. Uh, he has sued uh, Penn State University. That litigation is still pending. Uh, he sued the University of Cincinnati, saying that the, the security, they allowed him to speak, uh, but his security costs, he said, were too high. Uh, and he sued Ohio State University. So he's very litigious. Uh, he's really pushing the edge of the First Amendment in many ways. As I talk about in my essay, it's, it's really, you know, the First Amendment and Brandenburg, does it allow for prior restraint? Can we step in with the Tinker Standard at the college level uh, to, uh, you know, censor him? And also this concept, as I talk about the heckler's veto, it, unfortunately, it devolved into a shouting match. Uh, and so the sad thing is really, you know, the University of Florida spends more than half a million dollars for what wasn't even really an intellectual uh, event. Uh, it is not, uh, he really didn't speak. Uh, he kind of traded insults and barbs uh, with the audience. And so that's really not much of a speech event in the long run. And I think that's, that's problematic, too. Well, Professor Calvert, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and we encourage everyone to check out your essay on the Law Review's website. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you for publishing my essay. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Today's episode of Below the Line was produced by Jonathan Byron and hosted by Emily Rosnowski and Emma England. 
Special thanks to Professor Clay Calvert, David Edinger, Ken Zabler, Katrina Peters, Tommy Rouse, and Hillary Cheddar Ames. Our music is June Funk by Finn Johnston. Thanks for listening. <laughs>